Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 7 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's Bibles in the chairs. It's page 976. Uh, Please turn there. We refer to the text often. You will be helped by studying and, and having the Bible there in front of you. Now, this morning, we come to one of the biggest contrasts in all of Scripture, or one of the biggest dichotomies, one of the biggest uh, adversatives. In fact, one author put it as the mighty adversative. This text is so big and so huge that Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous preacher in his day, actually preached seven sermons on this text, two on the very two words, the first two words of verse 4. Now, when you think about great contrasts in Scripture, what adversatives, what antitheses come to mind? Now, I'm talking about this versus this. What types of things come to mind? Good versus evil, light versus darkness, life versus death, blessings versus curses, salvation versus condemnation, love versus wrath. Did anyone think about God's divine nature versus our human condition? Or maybe what we were by nature versus what we've become by the grace of God. You know, I think it's interesting that when you look at these contrasts in Scripture, these dichotomies, these these great adversatives, there's some common themes you have the very nature and character of God versus or set against the very nature and character of man. You have the work of God and His grace set against our work by nature. Our understanding of the Christian faith is completely dependent upon us getting these contrasts right They are essential. We need to understand these magnificent contrasts. Who is God? And who are we in light of Him? Who were we? What do we rightly deserve versus what God has so graciously done for us in Jesus Christ? You know, if we get this wrong, we mistakenly think that the Christian faith is about me. This is about my faith, my belief, my intellect, my knowledge, my understanding, my morals, my behaviors, my religious practices, how I present a self-made image before God and others. I want them to look at me this way, and so that's what it is. And so what happens is it becomes a religion of me. Right? It's about what I do. I become, at that moment, the beginning and end of the Christian faith as I define it. But if we get these contrasts right, we recognize that the Christian faith is not about me. It's about God. It's about who He is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. Only then will we view ourselves rightly. Only then will we humbly respond to God as we have been called to respond. Only then will we find true joy and true praise, and true hope, and true faith. But that will only happen if we get who God is and what He has so graciously done right. So is it any wonder then that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached seven sermons on this text? To get this mighty adversative wrong, honestly, is a matter of life and death. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it described what we all were by nature. All mankind for all time, every person ever born, ever living on this planet, what they were like. That all of us were enslaved. All of us were condemned. All of us were dead in our sin. This morning, we get to see the contrast. In verses 4 through 7, it is what we've become by the grace of God. 
And this passage makes it abundantly clear that salvation is not about us. It's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. Instead, what God wants us to understand from this passage is that God has done what we cannot so that we can display the riches of His grace. God has done what we cannot in order to display the riches of His grace. And so for us to properly see this contrast in its setting, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's the big adversative, verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah. Now it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at Ephesians, so I want to remind us of how this passage is connected to what has come before. Okay? Our passage this morning is really, it starts out as a further explanation of chapter 1, verse 7. That in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. Right? Paul is elaborating on that. He's taking it further. He wants us to really understand the weight and significance of that. And so he begins to pile on all of these descriptions of what it really means to be saved in Christ. That apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, you were dead, you were enslaved, and you were condemned. But by God's grace, that is no more. Because God has done what we cannot in making us alive and raising us up with Christ and seating us with Him in the heavenly places. Friends, you have to understand that this goes beyond just this this menial, minimal, reductionistic notion of forgiveness and redemption to being just an elaborate, decorative, lavish display of God's grace for us that we have received in Christ. All of those spiritual blessings that Paul had described in verses 3 through 14, things like election and adoption and redemption and a guaranteed inheritance and being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, all of those are ours now in Christ because there has been a positional change in us, a change that we did not bring about, a change that God has done by His own hand. But this passage is also connected particularly to chapter 1, verse 19. Now in that larger context of 15 uh, 15 through 23, Paul thanked the Lord for all that he has done in the lives of his readers, but then he prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God. And he wants them to understand three things in particular. The hope to which God has called them, what are the, the glorious riches of God's grace towards us, or uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, sorry, um, and then the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. Anybody struggling with that this morning? Believing that God is powerfully at work towards those who believe? They were in Paul's day too which is why he expounds on it. This is what Paul is dealing with. He, he wants us to understand God's power at work in us. That's why he's talking about it. Now he says, he finishes out chapter 1 by saying that, listen, God's power is clearly evident in Christ because God, by His power, raised Christ from the dead and exalted Him above every earthly and heavenly power. He is reigning and ruling over all. 
That's how powerful God is, and that's how he's at work. And you need to know, you need to understand that Christ was truly dead, but Christ has been raised, and now he is exalted to supreme place over all things. He is ruler. He is king over all. He is victorious. That's the power of God that is displayed in Christ. But it goes beyond that. Chapter 2. Paul is not content with saying, listen, you need to know that God's power is at work in you because God has done this in Christ. He's saying, no, listen, you need to understand, John, that God's power is at work in you. Because here's the thing, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You were condemned under God's wrath. All mankind were. Every single person in this room, every single person on this planet, every person that ever existed, that's who we were. That's the state of all mankind until God's power was displayed in the lives of his chosen ones through this mighty adversative in verse 4. But God. The display of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe comes when we realize what God has done for us in Christ. And just as he did in Christ, Christ was dead, he was raised, he was exalted. So you see in our passage, we were dead, we were raised, we were exalted. And the only way that you will truly realize the depth of this immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe is to understand just how desperate your sinful state apart from the grace of God really is. How horrible, how hopeless is the human condition. We have to get that right. Only then can you see the power of what God has done for you in salvation. Only then will it seem glorious. And so now here we are in verses 4 through 7. And Paul is speaking to us words of life, words of hope, words of victory, words of power. God has done what we cannot, what we can never do, in order to display the riches of his grace. And this passage reveals to us three ways in which God does this by taking us from who we were by nature and changing us, transitioning us, transforming us into something else by His grace. These are three contrasts of transition describing God's power to change every true believer. And the first work of grace that we see in this passage is that we go from being dead in sin to being made alive in Christ. Made alive together with Christ. Now verse 1 has clearly told us our hopeless state apart from the grace of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now all of us have sinned against God. All of us have rebelled against Him. All of us have tried to live our lives without Him. As if this is my world and I am God. And therefore, all of us, apart from the grace of God, are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he's not just speaking of physical death here, like the end goal of all of your sins is that you're going to die. Well, we know that that's the case. It's pretty obvious just by looking at human nature that all people die. But he goes beyond that to say, no, what he's speaking of is a spiritual death. Because of your sin, because of who you were by nature, you are alienated, you are separated from the God who is the source of all life, both physical and spiritual. You are cut off. You are under his condemnation. Few metaphors can more appropriately describe the hopeless and utter inability of our spiritual state apart from God's grace. Dead people do not respond. Dead people do not pursue. Dead people do not decide. Dead people do not desire. Dead people do not get up and walk. Why? Because they're dead. Right? Apart from the power of God, they are totally unable and unwilling to have life. The human condition, apart from the immeasurable greatness of God's power, is totally 
and completely hopeless. This is why Paul says to them in chapter 2, verse 12, that you are without God and without hope in the world. But death is not the only metaphor that the Bible uses to speak of the human condition that every person has apart from the grace of God. Ezekiel talks about us having hearts of stone, but needing hearts of flesh. That's something that we can't do, something that God must do. In Ezekiel 37, he talks about people as being dry bones, this valley of dry bones. And the only way that those dry bones will get up and live is for for Ezekiel to go and to preach to them, to proclaim the word of God to them. And at that point, God gives them flesh and sinews and covers them with skin and breathes and they live. That's God's work, not their own. David in Psalm 51 recognized that he was born in iniquity, that in sin did his mother conceive him. And what he needed, what he could not do for himself, was for God to purge him, to clean him, to wash him, to create in him a clean heart, and to renew a right spirit within him. The New Testament speaks of sights being given to the blind for, or light penetrating into darkness. In each of these descriptions, there is no hope. There is no life. There is no salvation in the original condition unless God powerfully and miraculously intervenes. Have you all ever been in the dark? Like dark, dark, dark? You know what I'm talking about? Like in a cave, dark, or in a basement, dark, or just in a room, dark, where there's no light? You hold your hand up in front of your face and you can't see it, dark? I mean, so bitterly and utterly dark that you felt like you've gone blind. I remember when I was in eighth grade, I went to this church camp, and this this camp had this cave. And it wasn't like a real scary cave. I mean, it was all just, you know, they, they had lots of people go through there, so it was all safe and everything. It was about a quarter of a mile long, and at the end there was this pool of water, and they kind of gated off everything else. It was basically a straight shot to the back of it, right? Well, one night, a couple of friends in uh, we went out there, and we went down to this cave, and we were back there at that pool just kind of throwing rocks in the water, and then suddenly the lights went out. And it was utterly dark. And we'd been in this cave a dozen times. We knew basically how it went and all that, but it was black, and we were scared. Right? And even though we knew that the danger was limited, and even though we knew that if we just groped along the wall far enough, we would get back to the... The end. There were those points in time where we thought we were never going to get out. Where we just longed more than anything for light. Just to see any kind of light. And I remember finally like rounding this corner and, and seeing the light just kind of penetrate through and radiate to just kind of consume and take up. And finally I could see my, my sight was restored. And I, it was just life-giving and hope-giving. And, and this was in the middle of the night. Light. This wasn't like a bright light penetrating darkness. You ever felt that way? That sense of awe and relief and hope and, and, and life that comes from light penetrating darkness. Well, our true condition apart from the light of God's grace is far worse than being caught in a little cave when the lights went out. I mean, it would be more like being born in a cave and growing up in a cave that was hundreds and hundreds of miles long with all sorts of passages and crags and, and drops and, and dangers everywhere, never having light, never seeing what it is, not even knowing the way out. That cave at that point would be a tomb. It would be a prison. It would be a sentence of death. That cave that you live in is dark, and you love the darkness because that's all you know. You've never seen the light. That cave is the condition of the heart of all mankind apart from the grace of God. We were dead in our sin. But praise God, it does not end there. He speaks words of light that penetrate into the darkness, but God. That even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. How much did we participate in that? What did our effort achieve us? Where our effort, our life, our desires and passions led only to death, God entered in and made us alive. 
He didn't do it with our assistance or our cooperation. He didn't ask our permission. He didn't wait to, to see with, by our own power or our own volition if we would show some sort of signs of life for us to respond. No, it says that God made us alive together with Christ. This is not God helping those who help themselves. This is God bringing life from the dead. Did you get that? That's what the text says. And how do we know that God is working according to his great might to bring life from the dead? Well, because Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect life and gave up that life by dying as a substitute for sin. Jesus took on our sin, our death, our condemnation upon himself, and he rose from the grave to prove that he had and to show that there is new life for those whom God has chosen, that God has made them alive through repentance and faith. This was God's work of grace in contrast to our nature. God made us alive together with Christ. There are a couple other things about this verb. Notice, first of all, that it's past tense. You were made alive. Meaning, if you are in Christ, you have life now. You are not half dead or sick trying to weasel your way towards God. You've been made alive. Second, look at the direct object. Us. What that doesn't say is that God made you alive, and God made you alive, and God made you alive, and God made you alive. It says God made us alive. It's collective. Together, He made us alive. And that third word there, in every one of these three verbs that we're going to see, Paul adds this prefix that means together. God made us alive together with Christ. He does so together. When Christ died on the cross, we who are his died with him, meaning we died to sin. We died to ourselves. We died to the world. We died from this pursuit of finding our soul's satisfaction in all that the world has to offer. When Christ rose from the grave, we were given new life in him. Together, we were made alive. And apart from Christ's death and resurrection, we are still in our sin. But because he has died and because he was raised, we who are his were made alive together with Christ. This is something that all who are truly in Christ have participated in mutually. Together. Now, the fact that we have been made alive together with Christ ought to tell us something about the importance of the church. It ought to tell us something about the importance of solidarity, of unity, of seeking to be together, united in Christ. You have to understand that you do not fly solo in salvation. It is not about you and Jesus and and everything else is optional. It is about us. It's about what God has done for us together in Christ. The new life that is ours in Christ is not simply some piece that we add to our mostly full life. It is your life, and not just yours, but ours, because he made us alive together with Christ. God has done what we cannot. He has given us new life, and that new life is not to be spent upon ourselves in that former manner of life that we did when we were dead in our sin, but to be devoted to his purposes, his goals, his accomplishments with his people. That's what it means. To be made alive together with Christ. And I've got to tell you something. If you're not thinking rightly about faith and salvation, if you're not thinking about the person next to you who is a brother or sister in Christ, you're not thinking rightly about salvation. You're not thinking rightly about this text. You're not thinking rightly about what it means to have faith in Christ. 
Why? Because you have been made alive together to be united together with Christ. This transforms everything. Your relationships cannot be the same. Your future decisions regarding where you go to school or where you go and work and and the types of things that you pursue, all of that has changed. The church has to be considered in that because you have been made alive together with Christ. We can say a lot more about that, but we're going to keep going. By nature, we were dead in our sin, but solely by God's grace, he has made us alive together with Christ. And the second contrast that's presented in this passage is that by the grace of God, we go from being enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh to freed in Christ. In verses 2 and 3, Paul reminds us of our former enslavement to the world, the devil, and the flesh. He says we were following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. That's everyone. Now the world is a whole structure and value system that is alien to God. It tries to live without God. It rejects God. It's taking on whatever mindset or practices our God-rejecting culture hands us. That's everything from materialism to the rejection of morals and truth. You know, when I preached on 1 through 3, I described the world as the church of the dead. Because we were made to worship. And we're always worshiping something. Right now, you are worshiping something. However subtle, you are. Whatever has captivated your thoughts and minds, whatever you seek to find your fulfillment in, that is what you worship. You need to understand that the world is the church of the dead in that it is calling you, it is bidding you at all times to worship. It has its own values. It has its own traditions. It has its own liturgies, its own songs. Everything. And it bids you come. It calls you constantly. Come and worship. Come and worship. Come and bow down. Anything in the place of God. And if the world is the church of the dead, then Satan, the devil, is the preacher. He's the pastor. He's the worship leader. The deceiver. His goal is to entice you, to persuade you. Come and worship. Come and worship. All those things that you long for, all that you love, all the things that you follow after, they're better than the life that God offers you. All of those cravings and desires that you have, they're good. And and God, He just wants to ruin your fun. His goal is to get you to think that you can have your own thing, that you can live your own way, that you can have God and the world too. And he will twist and distort and even get you to believe half-truths because he gains in that because a half-truth is a whole lie. But Satan is not our ultimate enemy. Our ultimate adversary is our flesh. Your biggest problem is you. The flesh... It's your passions and desires to put anything in the place that belongs rightfully to God. It's putting anything before Him. Ultimately, it's your sinful and selfish nature. We crave and we desire things that cannot satisfy. And rather than recognizing the futility of that, we keep seeking for other things or more of those things. Because like a drug addict, if I just have one more hit, then it will be enough. Just one more and it will be enough. Finally, my soul will be satisfied in all of those things that I'm seeking after. Never to achieve what you're longing for because it wasn't created to do that. The world... The flesh and the devil are never neutral. They are always enslaving. And by nature, we are caged by them. But by the grace of God, we are no more. 
Because Paul says in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And God raised you up together with Christ. And God seated you with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have been freed from the power of the world, the devil, and the flesh. We are imprisoned no longer. Because we have been made alive together with Christ, we now have new life. We have been saved. We have been born again. We are a new creation. We have been freed from sin and are now freed to obey God. Because Christ has been raised and exalted. And we were together with Him. Now again, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, they leave out this important word, this important prefix. Together, together, together. Each time it happens together that we were raised together with Christ, that we were seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. Meaning if you are in Christ, all of you have and we all have together. That's where we are. That's our true identity. That's our true home. That's the true address that we live from. We can't miss that. God's power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come, that power is at work in you. Having given us new life and the power to obey Christ. We have the Holy Spirit who unites us with Christ and if Christ has defeated death, If he has defeated the world and the devil and overcome the power of sin, then we are slaves to them no longer. By the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we are now free to follow him. And so, why then would we seek to live as slaves again to the world? We've been freed. Why would we try to blame our sin on Satan or our biology or our circumstances or other people rather than fighting them victoriously by God's power? If the light of God's grace has penetrated the darkness of our hearts, why then would we love the darkness and hate the light? Why would we not rather, instead of hiding our sin in the darkness, bring it into the light and expose it, that we may be freed from it? If Christ is reigning over all, then why are you grasping for control of your life? If we see the power of God displayed towards us who believe, why would we want to settle? And I mean settle worshiping anything less. If God makes us alive and raises and exalts us together with Christ, then why would we think that our situation is hopeless? Why would we think that we can't change? Why would we think to ourselves, this is just the way that I am? If God has accomplished this powerful work in us, then why would we think that others are beyond hope? That guy, he's a lost cause. Why do you think that? Because you're proud? Because you're smarter? Certainly not because you're prettier. Why? Grew up in a Christian home, you're privileged, you got something that this guy doesn't have? No. So what is it? Perhaps it's this. Perhaps it's because you don't truly realize the life and the freedom and the power that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Perhaps it's because you don't have it. Friends, we are called to behold and to marvel at what the Lord has done. Together we were dead, but he made us alive. Together we were enslaved 
to the world and the flesh and the devil. But together, He has saved us and raised us and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Hope and power and victory that are ours as we are united with Christ by faith. And so do you see who we were by nature? And do you stand in awe of what we've become by the grace of God? Well, perhaps this third contrast will help. By the grace of God, we go from being condemned by God's wrath to justified by His grace, mercy, love, and kindness. Now verse 3 told us the result of our sinful condition, that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature we were dead, enslaved, and condemned. God's just wrath has fallen upon all of us. We were children of God's wrath. We were sons of disobedience. We had rejected God, and because of that, we were rightly subject to God's eternal condemnation. That is what we deserve by nature. No one deserves salvation. No one deserves a second chance. No one deserves hope. But by the grace of God, That is not all we got. Though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, many are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. By nature, we were received condemnation, but by the grace of God, we are justified. Now, these are legal terms, both condemnation and justification. When you are condemned, then in a court of law, you are guilty. You are declared guilty in a court of law. That's what it means to be condemned. To be justified in a court of law is to be found innocent, to be found righteous, to be acquitted. But here's the thing. In the case of the Christian faith, you are not justified because of your own state. It is Christ that justifies you. By His blood, your guilt was cleansed and you received His righteousness. You don't save yourself. You don't justify yourself. Christ must do that for you. But Paul doesn't leave it in terms of cold legal decisions. God is not simply the just judge. He's always also the merciful justifier. And Paul gives us reasons that we can understand why God made us alive and raised us with Christ and seated us with Christ. And it's because of God's own nature, His perfect character. Look at verse 4. The reason why God saved us is because He's rich in mercy. Now, if grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. God is not just merciful. He's rich in mercy. It exudes from it. It's abundant and lavish. God is merciful. And how do we know that? Well, because though we were rebels and God-haters, God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God has taken those who were his enemies and he's given them an inheritance. God has taken those who were dead and he's made them alive. So we know that God is merciful. But Paul adds to that a second reason. Because of the great love with which He loved us. So not only is God merciful, but He loves us with this great and exceeding love. Now the Bible doesn't speak about love as the warm fuzzies. Right? Like we so often want to define it. I feel good about this person, so I love them. No. Love in the Bible is a commitment to act for the well-being of others. It is an impartial, self-sacrificial commitment to act for the glory of God and the good of others, regardless of their response, reception, or reciprocity. And how do we know that God loved us? Well, God showed His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And this is love. 
Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and gave his son, Jesus Christ, as the propitiation for our sins. I can't believe I said propitiation twice in the sermon and Jim is not here. You'll have to tell him. Lexi, you tell him. Okay, thank you. I mean, how could God more clearly and lavishly display his love for us than the sacrifice of his dearly beloved son on our behalf? You can't. You can't. And not only was the wrath of God met with the mercy and love of God in the cross of Christ, but also God's lavish grace was bestowed upon undeserving sinners. Grace is not some trivial thing. Paul mentions grace 12 times in Ephesians alone. He's so far he's described it as glorious in chapter 1 verse 6, that it is abundant and lavish in chapter 1 verse 7. It is a saving grace in chapter 2 verse 5, and he describes it here in verse 7 as the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Does that seem light to you? Does that seem flippant? Does that seem like provenient or cooperative grace that basically cleans your slate and gives you just enough of a push to get you over the hump to God? No. This is excessive grace. This is lavish grace. This is life-giving grace. This is God-exalting grace. This is abounding grace. This is not like adding power or favor in the way that you would add an extra battery to your favorite toy car so that it will go a little bit faster. This is the power of a defibrillator that shocks a dead heart to life. This excessive grace is life-giving power. It is recreating power. It is resurrecting power. God gives it in abundance. It is the unquantifiable wealth of His power and favor towards undeserving sinners who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only does He give it in excess, verse 7 says that God gives it as a display of His kindness, of His goodness and generosity. Titus 3, 4-7 says that when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That in God's kindness, he not only spared sinners from the just wrath that was due them, but also in love, he predestined them for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And this even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What mercy. What love. What grace. And what kindness that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why God made us alive together with Christ, it's got nothing to do with you. The reason why he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places is because of who God is. His very nature His character. Because in the death and resurrection of Christ, we see the holiness and the goodness of God meet and put on display for all to receive. So that was the reason why God did all this. Now for the purpose, the intended goal, the consummation of God's plan, the eternal purpose that He will achieve in our salvation in Christ by His grace is found right there in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now get this, for all eternity, we will stand as displays and trophies of the incomparable grace of God shown to us in Christ. 
that throughout time and in all eternity, the church, the society of pardoned rebels is designed to show and be the masterpiece of God's goodness. That those who were former prostitutes and murderers and gossips and liars and thieves and homosexuals and junkies and Pharisees and proud and self-righteous and heretics and atheists, all sinners of every description who have been washed and sanctified and justified, not on the basis of what they have done, but as an internal demonstration of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of our salvation. That we might be to the glory of His grace. Don't lessen that to make it about you. It's not about you. It is about Him. Praise the Lord it's about Him. We the church, the untold myriad of ransomed sinners, will forever stand as a reward as an everlasting memorial of the glory of God in salvation. So what do we do with this? How do do we respond to this passage? How do we live in light of such a gracious and glorious salvation? Well, first of all, it ought to humble us. It ought to humble us. When we understand the magnitude of what God has done, what He is doing, how can we possibly attempt to take any credit for it? I mean, how could we dare to seek glory for ourselves? As if I really had anything to do with it. It was my choice, it was my prayer, it was my religious activity, it was my goodness, my wisdom that saved me. Where do you see our work in this passage? You see right there in verse 5, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, and the weight of such a glorious salvation ought to lead us to very soberly and carefully assess ourselves. It ought to lead us to affirm just how vile, just how wicked, just how evil our hearts really are. Like Paul, Paul, we say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It should lead us to a hatred of our sin and to humbly turn from it and run frantically and desperately to the cross, no longer hiding our sin in darkness, tucking it away, protecting it from the world around us, but exposing it to the light for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what I long for because of what Christ has done for me. It ought to humble me. Get on your knees. Do not remain proud. Do not treat it as like it's a light thing. Stop living a lie. In addition to humbling us, it ought to grip us in worship. I mean grip us. In worship. I'm not talking about, okay, we're gathered here on Sunday, now let's sing some songs. Okay, well, that's a really great truth. Thank you for that, Chet. I'm going to go on my way. I'm talking about awestruck, breathtaking wonder and praise. You know that thrill that you get when you're cheering on your winning team? That ought to pale in comparison to the glories of the gospel. When we realize that Christ is victorious, that He is reigning, when we realize the promises and the purposes that God has in store for us, for the power that is available towards us in His grace, it ought to fascinate us. The gospel should enthrall us. This is not some peace that you add to your life. It is all-consuming. And if you find this boring, you just find yourself apathetic or indifferent and just kind of nodding off this idea. I mean, if you could actually be apathetic towards the glorious wonder of the gospel, this doesn't lead you to marvel at the glory of God. Friends, I, I just got to warn you, I don't know that you can call yourself a Christian. 
Now, what I'm not saying is we don't, we have those seasons. But if this bores you, if you are apathetic and indifferent towards the cross, why do you call yourself a Christian? What is it that makes you think that you love God? What are you basing your supposed faith upon? Honestly. This does not grab you and shake you out of your apathy and indifference. I don't know that you can say that you love God. And I'm I'm with Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. I think that he's right. If this does not lead you to worship and adore Christ, then he says that you need to go back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 and sit there until you see yourself. Because you don't get it. Humility and worship ought to be the response of such a glorious salvation. And finally, it ought to motivate us. I mean, if this is the power at work within us, why on earth would we desire to return to the vomit of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Why would we love and long for that former manner of life that we've been freed from? Why would we want to return to that hopeless, godless, and lifeless state? Why would we choose that which brings forth death rather than live in the life that we've been given in Christ? If God has made you alive, He has given you all that you need for life and godliness. He has given you this glorious vision of your future. That's what you ought to live for. Not for this world but for that which never perishes, that for which you were created, that's what you were heading towards. Live in light of that now. Do not pervert the grace of God into licentiousness, but live in a manner worthy of that glorious and eternal call that you have received in Christ. Why? Because God has done what we cannot in order to show in you and through you the riches of His grace. Let's pray together. Father, I I pray that this text would give us life this morning. I, I pray that when we see the grace that You have shown in Jesus Christ, that we would never doubt Your power, that we would never live as those without hope, that we would stand in awe and wonder about what you have done and are doing in our lives. I pray that it would change the way we think about our purposes and aims in this life. I, think it would, I pray that it would change the way we think about our relationships. God, I pray that we would no longer walk in darkness. If there are those here that are, Lord, I pray that light would penetrate the darkness that the dead would come to life and that we would humble ourselves and repent of our sin and rejoice in what you have done in Christ and be motivated to seek your purpose, to reflect your nature and character, to live in light of that calling that you have given us for our good and for your glory. Forgive us for making much of ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would make much of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.